Hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host and the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery field. This podcast is in furtherance of that mission. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. There are any number of films that address substance use disorders in recovery, including large budget fictional representations, some horrifyingly accurate like train spotting, as well as documentaries which may represent a person or a community's uh, struggles and recovery. Our guest today is a producer of a different kind of documentary about SUDs and recovery, one which addresses the underlying cause of so many struggles related to SUDs, trauma. Hope Payson is a social worker and a producer of the award-winning film, Uprooting Addiction, in addition to one of my longest standing colleagues and friends in this field going back nearly 30 years. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome her to this podcast today. It's great to talk to you again, Hope. Great. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show. And I can't believe it's 30 years. I think you're lying. It's, it's, okay. We're getting there. So I think it's ah, like 28 or 29. That's scary. Okay. 92 or something like that. Something. I can't remember. It was so long ago. <laughs> oh, how things have changed. <laughs> so as, as we begin, um, congratulations on the awards. I saw that there were, you just received an award in Mystic. Um, for the film. Can you talk about the film? Describe it a bit for us. Sure. So Uprooting Addiction is an hour-long film um, that focuses on the stories of six different people who are from Connecticut. Actually, one is from upstate New York. Um, We tell their stories and we trace the roots of their, um, the connection between their addiction and what they think made them vulnerable to their addiction. And that for them is their trauma and histories of neglect. Um, It is an uplifting story. Um, It's not graph. It doesn't do any graphic um, drug using scenes. It's more about just the regular life of someone in recovery and about how six different people made it in in various ways, use different ways to get better. And when you selected the folks that wanted to participate, was there a process that you went through to to kind of, you had to weed certain people out for one reason or another? Or these, was it a pretty easy process in, in getting the folks that wanted to participate? Well, the whole process of the whole film was kind of um, an interesting ride. So I get this idea, I have to present at a national conference and I think I am so sick of presenting PowerPoints and um, statistics. I want people in the audience to really see real people who are recovering. Um, what they say and what they're doing. I wanted the audience to be inspired by that and motivated by that rather than just um, teaching about um, different modalities of therapy. So I sent out an email. I just sent it out to the world and said, hey, I'm not so great with the camcorder and I want to shoot this really important um, stuff. Anybody know anybody that's good with a camcorder who could help me? And I got an email back from a filmmaker saying, I heard about your what you're looking for um, I might be interested. So I met with her and I told her what I was looking for. Now I hadn't even figured out what I was looking for yet. Cause I didn't have anybody to shoot nothing going on. So she says, I'm kind of interested in your story. I was telling her about my work and as a social worker with folks in recovery about their, um, about the, the information that we were understanding about the connection between addiction and trauma and how I felt that wasn't really out there. Um, 
in the mainstream media that people weren't as aware of what us in the field knew. Um, and that there was a misconnection, especially during all this time now, we're getting more and more um, issues, more and more media about fentanyl and overdoses. And yet all of the articles were all about the power of the fentanyl, the incredible, you know, how are we going to control it? What are we going to do about it? And I was thinking, is anybody looking at the power of the pain? Why someone would pick up a drug that's so dangerous and so lethal? Maybe if we looked at why someone would use it, and then start to work there, we'd have a shot at fixing this. It's overdosing and problems with addiction is not recent. It's been around forever. But if we start to look at the problem from the root, maybe we'd have a better chance. But that means that the general public also has to understand it so they can come along with us in the field that have been looking at this for a while. So I send this email out. I meet this filmmaker. She says, yes, I'm interested. Then I realize I better get some people to film. So then I send another email out and I said, hey, Basically, anybody with a history of trauma and addiction willing to blow all your anonymity and be filmed, and I have no idea what's going to happen with the film footage. I won't have a lot of control over it if it starts to get out in places. Um, how many people are willing to do that? And um, many people were willing to do that, like so many. Um, and so I started to interview them on the phone. Now I've got this process going that I had not expected. I'm thinking I'm making a little film clip. Now suddenly I'm interviewing people. And um, I'm on the phone with a bunch of them, um, and everybody wants to tell their story um, and doesn't care about people hearing it. They're not ashamed um, because most people at the time of the interview were in a pretty solid recovery. Um, some of them said they didn't have a, a history of trauma, and I didn't actually believe that, you know. Um, so, but I thought it'd be good to include them. So I did include some people. Um, Ryan Bailey is featured in the film. He was one of the people and, uh, who said he didn't have a history of trauma. And later in the film, he has an ACE score of nine, um, you know, significant trauma and neglect. But because it was so normal to him, the way he grew up, he didn't identify it that way. And by the way, no one had ever asked him in the years that he had interfaced in treatment and being incarcerated if he had a history of trauma. It was not addressed um, since the film. Um, he's starting to look at that. So now I've got these people. Now I've got way too many people. You know, so I, I try to narrow it down. I can't. I just say, everybody come to my house. We're going to do this. And um, 12 people showed up at my house. Um, we traced the roots of their addiction all day um, using this tree metaphor, looking at the roots and to the top of the tree. We took everybody's ACE. We did the ACE test together. And the film crew was here. We couldn't find a place to do this. Um, for free. We had no budget. We did it in my house. So it means we had to like unplug the refrigerator, cover the skylights, make it into like a little movie studio. When the people got here, some of them knew each other and some of them didn't. And we spent the whole day together. And at the end of the day, um, we had had extra counselors here in case people felt triggered by the material. At the end of the day, everybody's out on the porch eating their pizza Nobody was really that triggered. If they were, they were talking amongst each other and comforting each other. But the filmmaker came up to me and said, this stuff's super powerful. This isn't a film clip. Um, this, is, this is a documentary. This should be a documentary. And that started the process. So I didn't get into it to make a documentary. Um, but in the process, you know, then we started writing grants, raising money, because it, it takes a lot. Um, a lot of crew to make a film. It takes um, all kinds of stuff I know nothing about. Um, we formed an LLC. We got involved with the fiduciary agents so we could be a nonprofit. Um, and then we created the film. 
And we had many challenges. Um, the stories that we heard were so compelling and sitting there and looking at them and editing them down to like little clips was probably one of the most painful processes I've been in. Every story was amazing to me and needed to be told. And yet the public doesn't want or have the, we didn't think that the public would have a tolerance for more than an hour film. So we wanted to keep it to an hour because we used the film as a grassroots activity. So we bring it to libraries, we bring it to schools, we show it and then we talk after. So people in the film come and have consistently come to all the showings and then interact with the audience so that people in the audience can have a chance to talk to people that they relate to. You know, I've seen it uh, at showings, I think three times. And one was pre some edits. And the second time I saw it, there were some edits. So you can see that um, just making the film it, itself is a process. It's not, here's an idea. Here's what we film. We put it together and go. There's a lot of things that, that come into that. And I got a chance to meet Ryan, which was kind of funny being that where, you know, starting out down in the Southeast corner of New London, and he lives just around the corner from me in Bristol, really not far at all. Um, and we were talking and it was just kind of a nice thing to, to, you know, just have a conversation and kind of talk about the different towns and things like that. When I saw it, the thing that jumped out to me most was that these are your neighbors. These are our friends. These are our family. This isn't a celebrity talking about their recovery. This is a person that you see every single day, whether you know it or not. And I think that's the power in it. One of the things that's powerful about it to me is that, yeah, this is my community. It may be, you know, in the Torrington or the Northwest community where you're filming, but it doesn't mean I don't know those people in my community. And, and right. I think that's important for the public to see. Well, actually, Chuck, who's featured in the film, was my mail carrier. You know, that's how I met him. He was delivering my mail. You know, he's <laughs> and everybody loves him. You know, um, and he was really struggling and he his story is amazing. One of the things we did with the film, I don't know if other filmmakers do this, but I know other filmmakers will bring their film around in edited formats and get feedback. But we made an effort to really get the community involved to the point where people came to it, wrote their suggestions. We followed some of their suggestions. We showed it to our opiate task force, the Litchfield County Opiate Task Force. Everybody gave feedback. We've shown it at libraries. We've shown it at high schools. And so we took the feedback seriously. And that, and in that way, our community got involved with the film. And so most people, you know, in the Opiate Task Force are aware of the film, have been involved. Um, and it's got a nice wide spread throughout Connecticut. It does travel a little bit. And it's, it's, as you said, it's, it's kind of uplifting but it's a different kind of uplifting because you can see all the growth. People explain from where they were, and it's not so much telling a story about what they've experienced. I did this, I did this, but you're getting back to the trauma and saying, yeah, I can see where the, it is rooted in this. And, and we know uh, the numbers of that and certainly having uh, experts in the film, you know, the preeminent expert, uh, talking about trauma was, was really an exciting thing. And it's, it's, it's nice for us in Connecticut that it's our neighbors and our friends um, that are in there. Yeah. I think that was the piece that really struck me. The more, the longer I've been in the field is about, there is this root, this pain, you know, and for each person, it's very quite unique. 
And whether you identify, I mean, people think about trauma as sexual abuse or physical abuse, but it's a lot bigger than that. Um, and for many people, it's very ongoing throughout childhood. And how um, living like that, living in chaos, doesn't allow you to develop the skills you would normally develop. You live in this like survival mode where you have to just do what you need to do to survive. And some of the skills that you use are not so healthy, but they're what you need at the time. But as you get older, they don't work very well. And in fact, they work against you and they cause more trauma. And what I wanted people to see in the film is that this, yeah, this is our neighbor. This is our family member. This is our brother or sister. This could be any of us. Um, and as a community, we need to care about that. As a community, we can't just pick who we're going to care about. You know, like, okay, I'm going to care about this person because they got a virus and it's not their fault. And then look at addiction as, well, that is your fault because you chose to do that. I don't know anybody that chose to become addicted to things. It's something that you fall into. Right. I, you have responsibility. You know, I have a history of addiction myself. I have a responsibility to then take care of that pain and learn how to manage it differently and make sure that I don't hurt others. Um, but, you know, um, there's a reason why I got there. And knowing that really helps helps with the shame and the stigma, helps with recovery. And there's a significant difference in, in somebody's initial use, mostly being choice. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have an initial choice to use. People don't choose to become dependent upon it and become addicted. Um, so that's, a, and I think that the public needs to understand that, um, but there's not a real clear picture of that. Uh, yeah. And that's where the shame and the stigma comes in because, well, I can stop, you know, I can have a, a glass of wine with dinner. Why can't you? Well, because mm -hmm. I can't. <laughs> yeah. Some people can, they can just turn it off and it's not a big deal. And for others, it's not possible, you know, and that's nobody's fault. That's just the way it is. Exactly. Um, and so there shouldn't be, it should be like any other issue that we have sympathy for in our community, you know, any other issue that we're willing to fund, to help take care of. Um, yeah. I, I also, one of the things I liked about the film was it expands the view of trauma. Instead of just what you identified as a couple of things, trauma can follow us through our lives and it can come from different places and it's different for every single individual. I'm having a conversation later with, uh, for a Veterans Day podcast with individuals who are gonna talk about the trauma of going from military life to civilian life. Um, and it is absolutely real and, and things, those changes that you don't know how to adjust, you know, Daryl, our friend, Daryl McGraw talking about what it's like to go from being incarcerated to back into the community. You know, I know that when I worked, um, in a, a pre-release program, these young men and some older men knew everything about surviving in jail and were good at it but they had no idea how to survive on the street and they were just going to be set up to fail if they didn't learn a new way. So, you yeah. know, they were traumatized when they got back home to their families. Yeah. I mean, poverty, uh, the number one um, endorsed ACE of the ACE study, you know, the 10 questions where we, you can take the ACE test. If you haven't heard about the ACE test, you can take it and kind of evaluate um, the impact of childhood trauma the number one in the United States is poverty, which is kind of pitiful, given that we live in such a wealthy country. Um, poverty can be a very traumatic experience. Your parents are stressed out. 
You don't have the same clothes other kids have. You don't feel, you don't have food the way other people do. You don't feel like you fit in. And that has an impact. It isn't, um, it isn't the, what happens to you. It's what, how your brain and how your body reacts to what happens to you. You can grow up with difficult things, but if your parents are there and they can help you and they're not stressed out themselves, um, it doesn't necessarily translate as traumatic. You know, it's more about the meaning that you make of it. You know, so if I grow up and I look different than the other kids in my neighborhood, my family's not able to help me with it or talk to me about it or shore me up. Um, I can grow up feeling less than not good enough, you know, not because anybody did something directly to me, you know, but it's sometimes it's much more environmental. Systemic racism, very, very traumatic, never often not assessed when agency, when you go to the agency, um, filling out the forms of tell me about your trauma history. People don't mention things like that. You know, people don't mention what it's like to grow up in poverty. People don't mention what it's like to grow up and feel like um, racism is constantly in the air around you. It's in the air around you. So you're not mentioning it, but it does affect how you feel about yourself. And that's where it becomes dramatic. You know, we talk about the elephant in the room and, and the institutionalized racism is one of those things that we're just starting to talk about right. um, because of tragic events and horrible events. But living with that that yoke on your shoulders wears you down and, and affects how you think and how you process information because it goes through a different set of filters. Uh, and I think that that's one of the most important things that the film brings is that there's a lot of talk about different you know, views of different types of trauma. Um, mm -hmm. As a, you know, as a, somebody with a trauma history myself, I know that my brain when I'm stressed may initially go to survival mode and I have to use what I've learned and say, whoa, 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 that's not the best response. You know? Right. And that is that your fault. You know, um, it's your, you've taken responsibility for doing something about it and trying to learn about it. But you're lucky that somebody must have talked to you about it, that you got to see it that way. Because sometimes you can think like, what's wrong with me? I am broken. My brain is broken because I react to things differently than other people. You had the luxury of somebody explaining it to you or you learned along the way. I learned, I know, about my own brain by learning about it in school to help others. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, no wonder I do that. And that helps get rid of the shame and the stigma around it. Um, and it helps you to heal. You can't heal if you don't even know you have a problem. Yeah, I was about 30 and had good health insurance. That's what yeah, you were lucky. That's, that's well, exactly what. Yeah, and, and you ran into that. somebody that actually knew about trauma. Yeah. Because you know, I know when I went in for help, that wasn't a part of the scenario. It wasn't considered. They're like, oh, you must have ADHD. I'm like, I don't think I have ADHD. I, I'm pretty sure I did really well in school and I don't think I have ADHD. Or you must be, maybe you've got borderline, you know, borderline personality disorder. Maybe you got, um, forget the others. Um, no, I got personality disorder NOS, which mm -hmm. means there's something really systemically going on with you and it's been going on for a long time, but we can't figure it out, you know. But if you look at it through a trauma lens, it's like I don't trust people. It's hard to get close to others. You know, I can't speak my mind. And these are survival skills, you know, and they can be changed. You can rewire, you know. Yeah. And, and for me, like I said, it's the initial thought is not always the best, but I was taught yeah. and had to practice a lot. And I'm very thankful for the folks that helped me that to say, don't go with that initial thought, take that step back. Right. And say, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Uh, yeah. Because and you had I'm, health insurance that covered it, it, and you had a therapist that was willing to see you. You it, know, and that's part of um, the film's agenda is um, is that if people had more compassion, they'd be get behind funding, and that people who are struggling would be able to access treatment um, in a way that works for them. You know, um, in a format with choices. You know about what kind of treatment they want, and that somebody can reframe some of those symptoms, so you don't end up moving forward feeling like this damaged human being, but you move forward with some compassion, like, "Hey, I can recover," and it kind of makes sense to me why I do what I do. You mentioned earlier um, about some of the vulnerability that people have. Can you talk about when we look at trauma and vulnerability? Um, more of a conversation about that. Can we, can we talk about vulnerability a little more? Yeah, I think that um, it, it isn't so much that traumatic things happen. You know, what makes you more vulnerable is if you don't get the opportunity um, to work on them and reframe them. So that's why early intervention is so helpful, you know, for children. You know, that for children to know it's okay, their bodies belong to them. It's okay to say what they need and want that their feelings um, can be heard and discussed and that they can figure out they are allowed to have them. So early intervention, when something traumatic happens, makes you much less vulnerable to developing an addictive disorder later. Um, what makes you vulnerable is if you're growing up in chaos and you have a lot of pain and you weren't, your family isn't able to, because maybe they grew up in similar place, give you any of those life skills that are so helpful, like how to take a step back and not react how to say no to something that sounds dangerous or how to even recognize when something's dangerous. All those skills, you know, then kind of, they kind of bulletproof us a little bit in the future for other traumatic events because we know how to step away from things and we know how to say no to things and we know that our feelings um, are valid. Um, and I think so early intervention can decrease vulnerability, but a good public awareness can too where people actually recognize like, oh, hey, that kid's doing something in school that's a little off. Let's have him assess. Let's see, instead of just labeling him as having a learning disability, which he may, if he does, let's give him the help he needs. But if not, maybe it's something else. Let's look at that. Or, hey, but how about this kid? You know, let's, um, let's offer him treatment instead of just throwing him into that prison pipeline. You know, let's, or how about if we have to incarcerate people, um, there, it's a place where people can heal. You know, and they come out less vulnerable when they come out because somebody's listened to them. They've healed. They've done some work in school. They started a career path. We're going to hold people still like this. Um, maybe we should work on what got them there to begin with and help them have the skills when they come out to succeed. So there's so many interventions we can do that, you know, that it decrease vulnerability. Or how about treatment on demand, right? right? How about when I'm feeling vulnerable and it's time for me to get treatment and I ask for help, I get it. You know, that de when I'm asking at that pivotal moment and somebody meets me where I'm at, I was just listening to the, um, I was at the trauma conference that the Women's Consortium did. And uh, one of the keynotes, Tonier, was talking about how um, they asked at an intake um, you know, how much abuse she had been through. And she's like, do you have all day? Like, you know, so she fills them in. She opens up her heart. She tells them all this stuff. They close the file and it's never brought up again. And then they met, they match her with a male therapist. You know, and I was listening to the story like, yeah, how crazy is that? You know, we have this opportunity. A person's ready for help and they ask for help and they tell you what's going on. 
And then you don't listen to what they're saying and you don't help them find a course of treatment that best fits them. And you talk about vulnerabilities in terms of a young child. And that goes to something that I had learned many years ago when I was a DBT therapist and working with individuals that were diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. It was so empowering to be able to talk to these individuals, most of them women, because we know that there's a gender bias in diagnosis. If they were male, they would have been diagnosed antisocial. Yep. But it was saying that the way they responded to things, and this was something not that they were born with, it was created by that non-nurturing environment. You were told your response to things was inappropriate. It was wrong. So you didn't know how to respond, which also led to so many other issues, including substance use. Um, So I think that, that we need to talk more as a field about how we can decrease that vulnerability. Um, and it has to start early. And I think they do, but it's, not an, it's clearly not enough. Yeah, and one of the primary symptoms of um, personality disorders are um, affect um, dysregulation, the inability to, um, like you're, you're, you're super lucky in this world. If you can have a strong emotion and then downshift from that emotion and, and access skills in your brain that you can't access when you're fired up. And when um, I look at that, when I see that symptom, I think about what happened in childhood that that person didn't learn that. How chaotic or non-invalidating was it that that person just learned that it doesn't matter, you know, um, or that they didn't have a parent that could say, okay, take a breath, step back for a minute. What's going on? You know, I think um, I don't need to know about your trauma. I don't need, you don't need to tell me you have it. When I see that happening, you know, in sessions as a therapist, I know that that's what happened. And I can ask people, where did you learn that? You know, what happened when you were a kid? What happened with a kid when you were, when you would get really mad? Oh, that wasn't allowed. You weren't allowed to be mad. Or my mom would just check out if I get mad. Or my mom would get madder if I get mad. You know, so, um, yeah, those learning how to manage that. And the fact that you can rewire your brain, the fact that we're capable of that kind of change you know, is really exciting. That's the most exciting part of our field. It's it's funny to me in an odd sort of way that in the business world, they teach leaders emotional intelligence and how to manage their emotions. And there goes my beagle, who if people have listened to this podcast, know every now and again. Well, my dog was barking earlier. So it'll be like the dueling dog show. <laughs> that they'll teach leaders to manage their emotions so that they can be more effective. And it's very common. When we do it in our field, it's because somebody is viewed as broken by their uh, families and friends and things. Instead of it being normalized and saying, hey, people sometimes have problems managing their emotions and their effectiveness in society. So let's just talk about that and normalize it because it's a lot more common. And it doesn't have to be a diagnosable condition necessarily. It's just an issue that... Hey, I, you know, I have a problem controlling my anger, right? It's a reasonable. We need to teach therapists about that, about emotional yeah. intelligence, because there are simple ways that we can teach people to manage these emotions while we start to process them and when it gets difficult. Yeah. And I think everything is, can be learned better if you take shame out of the room. Shame's like the tar pit in therapy. You can sink into it and you just can't get yourself out of it. It's so sticky. But if you could say, I saw a woman the other day, she told me her trauma history. And I said, oh, given that history, you've got to have some addiction. She looked at me shocked, like, oh, what, what are you, 
I don't have any addiction. Why are you saying it that way? Like you accusing me? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just saying, I don't know how you got through that childhood without developing some compulsive behaviors. And then she relaxed. And I said, uh, I'm not saying anything bad about it. I'm, I think it's amazing where you've come, given where, where you came from. But there has to be some compulsive behaviors you use to get by. And then she said, yeah, there are. There's like three. She told them to me. And I said, yeah, okay, well, that totally makes sense. But maybe we need to upgrade your skills. Let's look at how we can take your strengths and, you know, help you, you know, maintain them. But let's look at some different skills that will get you more of what you want in life instead of this compulsive behavior which you developed as a way to survive, you know, just normal, normalize it. And then the SUD deal, we talked about recovery capital, the things that help you maintain. And I think you're talking about the exact same thing with maybe using a different words. People who have experienced trauma have an incredible amount of resilience that we have. We don't necessarily see because they're here and they're sitting in front of us or they're talking to us. And that in itself, in many cases, is miraculous. Yeah. No, people are much um, stronger, braver, and capable than we give them credit for. You know, I work in, um, I do EMDR therapy, which is a trauma therapy, but I do other types of therapy. But often I'm I'm a consultant. I work with other therapists and they'll ask questions about, well, is my client stable enough? Or do you think they're ready for this, um, this next stage of therapy where they talk about their trauma in more detail? And I thinking to myself, yes, they are. You know, we can work on some things that may make you and that client feel ready, more sure that they're ready. But I can tell you they've lived through it already. You know, it's not going to get any worse talking about it. And they're they're showing up and they're trusting you, which there's no reason why they should, given their history. You know, um, yeah, people are braver, stronger, more capable. You know, and the word resilient lately, I've been thinking a lot about the word. I like the word, but when working... Um, with some groups of people where um, systemic trauma has been multi-generational, um, I've been hearing people say that it's important to remember um, that there's many people have been forced to survive and we call them resilient, you know, and what does that mean about the people, you know, like you and I are here talking. Okay. So we're obviously resilient. We've had our history of trauma and we we're talking about some of the things that we've been through and here we are. So we're resilient. What about the people who cannot get into recovery? Are they not resilient? You know, so I, I, I like the term. I like thinking about people as strong and brave, but I'm also more aware that um, sometimes what we're seeing is just pure survival skill. Like it's the only way to get through, you know, and um and we're, we should be grateful for that. I'm, I'm totally grateful for uh, my survival skills. Um, but I think it's unfortunate, you know, that we are continuing in the United States to see this multi-generational stuff play out. We're not intervening so that more people have to have those survival skills, you know, that we are not intervening early enough. We're not looking at some of our systemic societal issues um, that force people to have to survive and be what we call resilient. So I'm just watching that term. I, I love it. And then it was a First Nations person in Canada that was telling me about it. She's like, hope everybody is calling our people resilient. Um, she goes, but it's not resiliency. It's survivor, you know, surviving, you know, being a survivor. And I thought, oh, I have to rethink the word. You know, rethink that a little bit. No, I'm going to have to as well, because that's an interesting uh, point that you bring up. And in, in from your trips to the 
working in Canada and things. That's that's interesting to me, and I think it requires some thought because we do throw resilience around quite a bit. Um, yeah, and I think it's a great term, but then what does it mean about the people who have yet able to access recovery or get those skills? So are they not resilient? You know, is there something different about them? And am I better because I am? You know, so we are all surviving something. Everybody here is. And some of us have access to things that make it easier. Like you had healthcare, I had healthcare. You found a therapist who defined your symptoms in a way that helped you. I did eventually. Um, and so does that make me resilient or does it make me privileged, you know, you know, because I'm able to, I'm able to get that. Exactly. And I'm incredibly grateful for my ability to do so because I don't know if I would have been able to without that access. Exactly. Um, although trauma was not until at least my second set of 12 sessions. <laughs> I, I don't recall. I didn't. I didn't get trauma treatment until I went and learned about it, and then I learned how to ask for it and who to ask. Oh, I didn't even know what I was asking for. I just knew how I felt, and that's why. Like I, I read this book. This is me. Can you do this type of therapy? This is what I want to do, and I really don't want to do anything else. You You're know? much more and, uh, informed than I was. I was told I was a terrible patient because I was <laughs> trying to figure out what's you know what is she trying to do here. So I couldn't let go of that part of myself for first, but it, you know, otherwise I didn't know I'm like, wait, that's not normal. But I listened to so many things during the day that are much more horrible. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wasn't a compliant patient by any means. I definitely yeah. um, did not succeed in my several uh, attempts at first, but it was uh, more um, that I just stubbornly wanted to do, do, I wanted recovery and I wanted to do it my way. And I wasn't actually wrong about some of the things I wanted. And I was wrong about some of them, you know, but I needed an open place with a person with an open mind who could say, okay, that's a bad idea. And this is why, but you know what, that idea you got there, that's a good idea. I think you should do that. I try to remember that when I work with my feistier clients, I actually don't even believe in the term resistance anyway. I think resistance is a trauma symptom. If I'm going to resist something that could help me um, and I won't do it, Either you're wrong, you know, about suggesting something that's not a good fit for me, or maybe um, I don't think I'm good enough to do it, you know, or maybe there's something that happened in my life that taught me that's not a good idea. Like the idea, the first thing that people ask you to do is go out and get help, go ask for help. Well, what if you learned as a survival skill that that's a really bad idea? You know, having a therapist who at least is curious, like kind of curious, what's, what's wrong with asking for help? is the beginning, you know, of um, good therapy for many, you know, just be curious about that. that old in, in the substance use disorder field, you know, in the last 15 years, we've started to address that as mm -hmm. this resistance, just being normal and normalizing it and not pressing against it, just kind of rolling like Bill Miller says, roll with it. Yeah. Um, and, and Scott Miller, who's a, a psychologist in Chicago, you know, has a program or has a thing where Patients rate the therapy they receive yeah. and people are learning that the resistance that they're experiencing is of their own doing. The clinician mm -hmm. is creating the resistance, not the other way around. Yeah. And I think that that's just, you know, to me, that's fascinating because and I, when I train now, I remember that. And we talk about that, uh, you know, I'll say, how do you know it's not your doing mm. when this person is digging their heels in? They're telling you something and you're pushing at it and not paying attention to it. you know when our clients don't do well do we look and say 
What's my role in that? We don't have to own the whole thing, certainly, but it's maybe I'm not able to reach that person. Maybe right. I'm not the right person. Yeah, um, and I mean, that's a there was an incredible lack of curiosity in the field when I first started in it. I'm so grateful that that's changed. But I remember back in the dinosaur age when you and I started working together, we would sit at these meetings and basically if it didn't work for the client, it was somehow the client's fault. You know, always the client's fault. They're not ready yet. Like the person's homeless. How more ready do they need to be? You know, um, they, you know, they're barely surviving, but they're not ready at home, you know, and you need to move on. I'm like, that, that, that felt really like a total lack of curiosity, like I'm in a field and my client is not responding. So what do I need to do different to meet that client's need? Not what does the client need to do different to meet my need or expectation? You know, and I'm so grateful that we're, we're past that now. Yeah. You know, a, a friend of both of ours, Peter Papalo, was my, my internship supervisor. And I was struggling with something in group. And I said, I don't know what's wrong with these folks. And he goes, maybe it's you. <laughs> And as only he can, you know, nothing else. He just dropped that bomb in, but it was right. And it was, it's not their job to relate to me. Right. It's my job to find a way to get them to relate, to relate to them and get them to relate to each other. It's, you know, and, uh, and I, I didn't, at that point in time, I was really unaware of, of the commonality of trauma, how, how so many people had experienced it and how, what role it played. And I think it would have been helpful in having an understanding of that. But the field wasn't there yet. Yeah, we weren't there, but we've come a long, long way, yeah. you know, to and even recognizing the fact that when someone comes to see you, you know, just learning to help people feel safe in the room, you know, and realizing that so much that we don't know, you know, and that's extremely freeing to me. I don't know. I know what I know right now, but I'm going to learn new things, you know, from every client that I work with, you know, and during the film, I learned so much, you know, about trauma, about people's stories, about mm -hmm different ways people recover. Um, it was humbling and wonderful, you know, to keep learning. And I think that was the same experience for me watching it, um, seeing it three different times and learning different things each because you can't, there's no way to, to focus in on, on everything mm -hmm. and, and fully, uh, as, you know, as a professional. I think for the general public, it's, it's nice to get that broad lens view part of me is saying, oh, I want to know more. So I'll focus on what this individual is saying. Well, I better see it again so I can listen to somebody else. Um, and I think that's what the most important thing, uh, both for the for our field and for the public, is that it really presents in a very clear manner, you know, issues with trauma. And, and we talk about, you know, uh, Gabor Mate talking about, you know, having him in the film was fascinating because he's so brilliant at this and just listening to what he says and, and changing our perspectives as a field uh, on trauma. I think that's really important. It's good for the field and it's really good for the general public to get an idea of kind of what our neighbors, friends and, and, and family are experiencing. Yeah. I know that there are some showings. Can you tell me how can people see the film? If they um, haven't right, already. Yeah, right now the film, there's a unique opportunity. I don't know when you're going to broadcast this, but um, as of tomorrow, starting tomorrow, mm -hmm. it'll be um, broadcasted for free between um, November 6th and November 12th um, on Real Recovery Film Festival. So it's real, R-E-E-L, uh, recoveryfilmfestival.org. 
Um, it's a great online platform that has multiple films about recovery. So people can sample different films, but you can see ours. Um, if you're too late to meet that deadline, you can always go to uprootingaddiction.com, which is our website. Add your name to the mailing list because we're in the process of negotiating with a distributor. Once that is set up, we can send uh, a link will be posted and you can go to that website and either download the film or find out how to have access or also get an educational license. Like if you wanted to show it to large groups, so that's yeah. just the posting. It's going to depend on when the editor gets it back to me um, because it's not something I know anything about. So I would rather yeah. send it to somebody, but I'll make sure that we post the, the real recovery film festival on our social media. Uh, yeah, for the CCB and, and so that it, the information gets out there to our followers. And I'll I'll make sure I send it out to some of my colleagues across the country so that they're able to do that as well. Yeah, and it's also just a great resource for folks in recovery and in the field because it's multiple films. So you get to sample them all, see them, and there may be other films that you like that you may want to use for educational purposes or you refer clients to if it right, the story seems right. Um, so I'll be doing that over the weekend, just reviewing some of the other films. So, Hope I really know how busy you are, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Um, my best to you and your family uh, and the dogs. I know that they're your family as well. <laughs> and, uh, Thank we'll you talk for the time. Soon. Yeah, it felt like a, just a big rant and catch up. Like it's like it was a lot of fun, exciting to talk about all these things. Yeah, it's, it, I can never get enough. That's why people don't want to be around me too much. <laughs> Anytime. Call me back. <laughs> All right. Bye, Hope. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody. That's going to do it for this episode. Until next time. 